Well, again, thanks for coming out tonight as we try to continue the series I started. I renamed it um, into Gospel-Centered Living as opposed to Gospel-Centered Ministry. And um, the idea, if I could communicate the idea, it might just be really um, sounding very familiar. I'm using the same words that we've always used, but I hope that you are seeing a new and deeper meaning to them and that's part of what I've experienced. Last time we talked about how my very first sermon here at this church um, back in the summer of 2004 <clears throat> was on Psalm 112. And in retrospect, I think that the gospel was functional for sure. But in my presentation of the Psalm 112, I, I basically presented a religious way of living without making specific reference to Jesus as the way and the reason why we would live that way. I think that is the reason why we would live that way, and you picked up on that probably, and the Holy Spirit was able to communicate that and connect it, and so it was working, but my message was fundamentally not distinctively Christian, at least not the way I remember. It was something that could have been taught at a Mormon church or some sort of a, even a, um, a Jewish synagogue, it was about how we are religious and we are the, like the man who finds great delight in God's commands. And it was, it was that kind of a thing. Do you remember back in the day too, it seemed like a, a sermon that was really practical was if the pastor could give you like four steps for this or nine ways to make your marriage more successful or or five steps to have your children be good children or something. And, and those kinds of messages are practical and helpful, but I think that they kind of characterized a, an entire, uh, a, a lot of people think of religion that way, that you, are, you just do what God wants you to do, and then you're um, going to be okay. And I viewed the gospel as a... Um, the gospel is working anyway, but I viewed the gospel as an entry gate into the kingdom of heaven, but I didn't understand or I didn't articulate very well. I shouldn't say I didn't understand. I just wasn't as aware of it as I am now that the gospel is how you live after you're in too. And so I, I thought of the gospel as how you get saved but now that you're in the church, you strap on your boots and you work hard and become what Jesus wants you to be. And so um, sort of a works-oriented way of living. And in that process, I encountered in my life the cross as, a, as its role in sanctification, but I did so in a religious way. In other words, Jesus' cross was the ultimate... Um, motivation for me to hate sin when I would focus on what it did to Jesus's body. And so I, I used it as a way, in my thinking, I used it as a way to try to live a better life, but it was, again, me trying to figure something out. And uh, let me just go back to Romans 6 a little bit here. This is a passage that's pretty famous in the scriptures about how to not do sin, not let it rain in your mortal body. And I approach this text, what am I supposed to do? I tried so hard, I still do, but I tried so hard to find out what I'm supposed to do. And recently I reread it, 
And I looked for the first command in this passage. The first time it tells you to do something. I highlighted it, but I want you to see how far we go into this chapter before Paul tells us to do anything, right? He's just saying true statements, and that's the part I'm trying to understand better. Um, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. That's not a command. That's just an observation. That's not, we're not understanding it right, okay? He said, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so I would try so far hard to figure out what I'm supposed to do with that. But Paul's just telling me something that's true. You follow? There's a truth being stated, not a command for me to follow. I'm dead to sin. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's another fact statement. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we, may, we too may live a new life. So he's teaching us things that are true from the gospel. Jesus died and was ro- risen. You are with Jesus. You died and, and you're risen and you can live a new life. These are true statements that are true whether I think they are or not, whether I act on them or not. They're true statements. And then he says, if we've been united with him in, this, in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. Do you see the command yet? Do you see him telling us to do something? What's he doing? He's just saying truth statements. It's true that I'm united with Jesus in his resurrection. For we know that our old self, our sin nature, was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Still just telling us the truth about the gospel, the way it works. When Jesus died on the cross for us, our body, when we believe in him, our body was uh, crucified with him and we're no longer subject to the law and sin like that. So now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Again, do you see any commands yet? What am I supposed to do? So far, I'm supposed to just, I'm supposed to just listen. Right? I'm supposed to just believe what God is saying. And so then finally... The death he died, and he died to sin once for all, but the life he lived, he lives to God. And so you and I, if we believe in Jesus through the gospel, the death Jesus died, we died to sin once for all, and the life he lives, we can live life to God that way. In the same way. So now I got a command. Finally, I put it in green, right? In the same way, what's the commandment? Count yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. What does it mean to count yourselves? That's a, I'm asking a real question. What, is it, what's a, what does that mean? What does it mean to count yourself? Consider, it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a decision with the mind, right? It's a belief statement. Believe that this is true. You already were buried with Jesus. You were risen with Jesus. The solution to my Sin nature is for me to believe the things that are true. Not for me to do push-ups or read my Bible more or try harder, right? It's something that's already true. 
Therefore, so therefore, if you believe it's true, then you don't, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its evil desires. So I have a free choice now to not let sin reign in my body. I can choose not to give my body over to sin. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Since I've been brought from death to life, since in Christ he's died and I died to the law through him and he rose from the dead and I rise in him, the work of the gospel applies to me. I've been brought from death to life. That's why and that's how I offer myself as an offering to God. The gospel makes it possible for me in my life to do those things. It's not how strong I am or how disciplined or how many Bible verses I memorize. As good as those things are, it's because Jesus did the work. And if I fail, it's because I'm not believing that he did the work. I'm thinking that I need to do the work. There's a big difference between that and a religious kind of lifestyle. So offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. That's what I'm trying to help us understand, that a gospel-centered living is the realization that I'm standing before God by grace, by his gift, by the fact that he gives love and power to me, not because I have the works to do it. I'm not saved by, I'm saved by grace, not by works, right? I live by grace, not by works. It's not my efforts that got me saved, and it's not my efforts that make me stay saved. It's not my efforts that got me saved. It was by grace alone. It's not my efforts that make me to grow spiritually. Do you believe that? It's hard because we all rise up. But, 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 but. You can't just do anything you want and get away with it. You can't just live any. No, that's the part he says, shall we sin that grace may abound? No, no, and that's your misunderstanding. The point is, is that something really happened in my life when Jesus saved me from my sin. And it's true that I do not have to be a slave to sin anymore. And I actually have the ability and the desire, that's what grace is, the ability and the desire to believe in Jesus and the ability and desire to believe that I don't have to sin and I can offer my body as a living sacrifice to God. So the gospel is not just the entry, it's the way we live all the time and not in a religious keep the rules kind of way, okay? So that's where I kind of ended up last time. And then I wanted to tell you about what I, this again, this whole series is sort of a, a story of a journey I've been on. And I, and I started to tell last time that there was this pastor named Randy Pope of Perimeter Church in Atlanta, a big church, a happening church. I think it's, I, again, I don't know its current history, the, the cassette, or the um, cassette, the, uh, the podcast that I listened to, I listened to four or five years ago, it was the first time I heard it, so I don't know when it was actually done. But he, um, he talks about, in this um, podcast, 
he's illustrating a completely other thing, but one of his points was we all understand the gospel, right? And he summarizes the gospel and he says, we lost it all, Jesus paid it all, and we get it all. And he says, you believe that, right? You believe that? And, and everybody, you know, in the, at the pastor's conference said, yeah, I believe it. And then his southern accent says, I bet you don't. I bet you don't. He says, let me tell you a story. There's a little girl, and I'm trying my best to reproduce his story, right? Randy tells the story. There's a little girl who lives in the Middle East, and she's the sweetest little girl. She's good to her little brother. She's about 10 years old, and, and she's just is doing what her mommy says, and she loves Allah, and whatever Allah says, she wants to do with her life, and she's just the sweetest little girl. So if uh, and Jesus come back, what do you think would happen to that little girl? says, I bet you don't, right? I bet you don't believe the gospel because we already rise up and say, but she's a good little girl. Somehow, some way she's okay, isn't she? No. The Bible makes it really clear that there's no one righteous. No one seeks God. And the fact that she seems to be a little girl doesn't change the fact that she's dead in her sins. And she needs to be saved by Jesus because he's the only way to be saved. And that sounds super politically incorrect, right? That's super narrow and super culturally um, arrogant or narrow-minded. But that's the gospel. And that's the part, oh, really? You see, the question is, did we really lose it all? Are we really dead in our sin? Or did we just lose a lot? And there's a big difference between losing it all and losing a lot. If we think we just lost a lot, but there's a little bit, there's a little spark inside of each one of us. And if we, down deep at the basic level, if we just, if we're, if we're given the opportunity, we can choose. And we'll choose the right path. And we'll do the right thing. And we'll deserve that little girl is so good. She deserves Jesus to save her. Doesn't, don't you want to say that? I want to say that, but that's not the truth. There is nothing good in us that would make God obligated to save us. It's totally by grace. We have to understand that we lost it all. We do, not, we do not have any claim that God would ever give us grace. We don't have, there's no obligation by anything I've done or anything I will do in the future. There's no obligation on God to give me the grace to save me. This is the great argument of Pelagius versus um, anti-Pelagius. Who's the guy? Anselm. Uh, Aquinas, Right. Um, the big conflict between Aquinas and Pelagius was, is there some righteousness in us? And a lot of people want to say that God, yes, God chooses, he predestines us, he chooses us, but the reason he chooses us is because he sees way down in the future that we will say yes to Jesus. And because God sees that we will do that good thing, then he chooses us to save him. And that's what Pelagius wanted to teach, that the reason we're saved is because we have a free choice and that we'll want to do that. And a lot of people in our world still struggle with that. There's different versions of that, but that's basically the question. Or is it that 
God, for his own reasons, beyond what we can understand, we do not know why he would choose. But out of his own free will, he chooses to expose and give life to us to make it possible for us to believe. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And even that is a gift of God. The faith is a gift of God, right? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. If there's any way I could say, the reason God saved me is because he knew that I would say yes. And I did. That's me boasting. And if there's any level of me boasting, then I have not understood that it was by grace. Because the truth is, I hate God and will hate God until he comes into my life and rejuvenates my soul by his spirit. And I'm born again, and then I can believe. It's all by grace, not by works, not by my merit, not by my worth. And the only way that that little girl will ever know Jesus is if Jesus saves her, not because she has a little spark in her heart. You follow? That's really critical. If we only think we lost a lot, if we only think that we sinned enough to get us into hell, but there's still a little shred of goodness, then we don't see why we need Jesus to pay it all. You see, if we think that we only lost a lot, then what do we need? We only need Jesus to do a lot. He's going to do a lot for us. Oh, there's a lot of things I could never do. I could never, I could never die on a cross. I could never, it's like the bridge, you know. Suppose we got a, um, over here is the lost people and they're standing on this ledge over here and this ledge over here is how you get to, this is heaven. And so we need a bridge all the way across. And Jesus, he does a lot. He builds a great big bridge. He, the bridge is even shaped like a cross and it gets all the way over to a, like a quarter inch. And so he does a lot. Right? He does most of it, but there's a quarter inch that we got to do. And that's how we get saved. That's what the Mormon church teaches. Right? You need Jesus' salvation for most of it, but we do a few other things. What are those things? Baptism, joining the church, a couple other good deeds. Um, that's not the truth, right? Jesus does it all, not a lot. And so if we lost it all, we know he has to do it all because I don't have anything to give to contribute the last quarter inch. And if he did it all, then the third piece of that gospel story is we get it all, right? If we lost it all and then Jesus pays it all, we get it all. And that was the one that I got stuck on. I said, really? No. I don't think so. Why would it be hard? Why is it hard for us to believe we get it all? What are some reasons, John? We don't deserve it. So I could stand there and judge God all day long and say, no, 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 you're not that generous. Yeah, I don't deserve that. But others, what are some other reasons we struggle with really believing we get it all? Yeah, we don't want to admit we lost it all and that he did it all. We want to hold on to a little piece that we did. Yeah, that's part of it. Glenn? Yeah. Yeah. 
So we compare ourselves to other people, and it can, I think if I'm hearing you right, Glenn, it could happen both ways, right? You can be, that you can see somebody who does better than us and say, see, I don't, I didn't get it all, right? They seem to be happier or more successful or more spiritual, or vice versa. We see other people that we're better than, and we give ourselves the credit for having done the difference. Yeah, Jesus' grace is enough to send, to save that wicked person, but they're still in big trouble, aren't they? Yeah, you know, they didn't do their part like I did. So pride's a big part of that, yeah. Any other thoughts of why it's so hard to believe we get it all? For me, I just, I just don't, I guess it goes, for me, the, the hardest one is I just don't think I deserve it. I, and I don't. <laughs> but I just don't think he would be that loving. I just struggle with the idea that God would love me that much personally, that he would actually give me all things in Jesus. I just don't agree with him about his assessment of me. <laughs> I'm smarter than he is about me. And it's hard to take. I, there's a number of ways that this manifests itself in my life. Part of it is, um, and I've, I've, I've been raised by a really good set of parents. I don't have a, uh, nobody's perfect, but I don't have dysfunctionality in my family. And my mom, I always said she loved me too much, right? She, she, she thought I couldn't do anything wrong. And my dad was always good to me. And, and so I don't have a father image problem, but a lot of people have really, really capricious fathers, right? I heard somebody say, the other day that in their family growing up, her, their parents, this person's parents um, played favorites. They had favorites. And they told this person, and you're not it. <laughs> so they struggle today as an adult with the idea that God loves them because in their forming years, they knew that their parents didn't love them as much as they loved somebody else and as a sibling. And they're... Uh, they knew that the love for them was conditional. And how awful, right? To have to, how can you, but the truth still is that God loves us that way even if we um, don't believe him that he does. And so it is true that we get it all. And I don't, when, I, when we say we get it all, what is it that I'm talking about? Am I talking about cars and boats and planes? No, I'm talking about uh, cars and boats and planes someday, right? The inheritance. But I, I'm talking about all of God's love and all of God's provision. Do you think that God gave more provision of the Holy Spirit and love to Paul than he did to you? I, not based on the Bible, right? He gives us all things. I wanted to find some verses that kind of support this idea a little bit. In Romans 8, um, Paul is wrapping up some of his great gospel, and he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? He just got done saying, you know, things that there's no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that God is at work in, all, in everything to, for the good of those who love him, to those who are called, be conformed to the image of his son. And then he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us 
all things. Do you see it in the Bible right there? If, if God gave up Jesus, he, the gospel, you, do you see the gospel right already here in the, in the whole explanation of the gospel? I have to, Paul has to use the gospel to illustrate. How do I know that God has given me all things? Because he did not spare his own son. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While I was still his enemy, God did that. And he gave him up all the way, right? Jesus went all the way. Jesus didn't go part way. Jesus went all the way and was rejected by the Father and died on the cross all the way, dead. And if God did that, how will he not also along with him give us all things? If he did that, right, what's the biggest proof? What is the biggest proof you and I have that Jesus loves us? He died for us. What is the biggest proof that God loves me and has given me all things? He gave Jesus for me. For me to say, no, you didn't give it all, I don't deserve it, is to insult God and say, you paid the ultimate price, but it's not enough, or it's not big enough, or I'm worse than that. I'm disagreeing with God on such a core level. So how much more, if he's given us Jesus, he's going to give us all things. We get it all. You have God as your personal Savior. The Holy Spirit lives in your life and my life and takes care of us and wants us to talk to him all the time. And he wants to guide us on every single step. And he wants us to give us our bodies to him out of gratitude for what Jesus did because we're already free from There is so much riches of eternal value that we've been given already. And we're still here. Can you imagine how great it's going to be when we get to heaven and we no longer have these sinful bodies to live in? And so he's going to give us all things. And then elsewhere in Romans, a little farther down the road, he says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Right? It's not, it's not a poverty. It's not a limited, oh, okay, ration it. We got to ration it out. Ration it? Ration? Is that the best way to pronounce We got to ration it out, right? We've only got enough food to get through the next 60 days. So you one-tenth for you. We're going to ration it out. No, God richly blesses because he's infinitely a giver. He doesn't diminish. There is no rationing of God's blessing. He gives it on all who call on him. Here's in Corinthians. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. We, we understand things. Are you talking about Moses wore a veil, remember? And now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So you and I have been given it all, and Jesus is all about, he began a good work in us, and he's going to carry it on to completion. He's all about changing you more and more and more and more and more like Jesus, right? Ever increasing glory. I am more like Jesus today than I was a year ago because Jesus is working. Do you get what I'm trying to say? The gospel is how we live. Here's another passage. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, right? 
You're going you're gonna to just flow. It's just going to flow out of it. Why? Because he's given you all things, all the time, <laughs> all that you need. We are so rich. Doesn't it sad to think how poorly we live when you consider how much provision has been given? Why on earth do I struggle with this or that or the other thing? I'm so, I'm so underachieving <laughs> considering how much grace has been given. And the problem is, I just don't practice. I don't believe what God said is true. If I knew I was the king like that, if I knew I was a child of the king like that, I, I would live a different way. So I wanted to say that that is the foundation of the gospel, that we lost it all. You have to understand that we didn't just lose a lot, we lost it all. And you have to understand that Jesus did it all. He didn't just do a lot, he did it all. And because he did, and because his promises, if you believe in me, I will give it all to you. I will provide for you everything you need. And so that is the gospel, and that's what we need to live by, and that's how we center our lives. Any questions about that? Does that make sense? We can pause here a minute. Does, does that bring up any thoughts, or um, does anyone remember kind of the first time some of this stuff, you saw it that way too, or... John? example from Martin Luther's own encounter with the just shall live by faith in Romans. And, and it's um, a faith from first to last. So it's not just how you get in the door. It's the way you live the whole Christian life is by believing. Um, if, I, if I sinned yesterday, say I, um, say I lost my temper and swore a lot. Say I said the Lord's name in vain and I did some bad things. Part of the way that I would respond would be, oh man, I've disappointed God now. I've, dis I've, I've, I've sinned against him and I need to, um, there's probably gonna be a time where he's gonna withdraw from me for a little while, sort of as a punishment. And maybe if I do some other good things, some penance things, that over time he'll forgive me I'll be better about it and it'll be over with, I'll be okay. Do you see what I just did? I did not 
practice the gospel at all, right? Because what I did in my example here is I used my efforts. I denied that I was forgiven of my profanity yesterday, and I, um, and I thought that it was up to me to restore relationship with God by virtue of doing two things, some good things, some penance, and enduring some punishment. And then the relationship would be back to normal. Maybe that's the way it is with human beings, right? Maybe that's what it's like with an earthly parent. But I slap Jesus in the face when I do that. Because what's the truth? The truth is that that sin was paid for already. And I need to, when the Spirit convicts me of my sin, say, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. But you're faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness and go right on from there and just go living for Jesus. No guilt trip, no penance trip, time to go get an ice cream cone. And it feels so strange that we would let ourselves off the hook that fast. But that's what it means to be following grace. That's what it means to understand salvation. Now, please don't misunderstand. This is not to say that sin isn't sad or that profanity isn't awful. But it is to say that the gospel changes the relationship between me and that sin. It is no longer, um, it never was, frankly, a merit-based, works-based, demerits, I'm not going to love you, sin a system. <laughs> right? It's not that system. The system is the sin I could never have not sworn because I've lost it all. But Jesus did pay it all, and now all of the forgiveness is mine. And for me to wallow in the defeat is to let the enemy lie to me and say that Jesus' blood isn't enough. And if you think about how arrogant for me to fit the profanity measured up at all to any of the other sins of selfishness I committed yesterday, what do I think? That there's some kind of tear system that all oh, profanity is the one that you got to do penance for and feel guilty about, but all the other selfish things you did all day, those don't matter. No, see what I'm doing. I, I've, I've set up a whole system of I did religion to Jesus instead of receiving his grace and the fullness of his forgiveness and the power of his forgiveness. I think it's very right to say, Father, I, I, forgive me for giving my tongue over to profanity. I give my tongue over to blessing you. Thank you for, thank you for your forgiveness. What do you want me to do next? Let's keep going, right? That's a different way of living. And I think that that's what the gospel is all about. I just want to, uh, we're going to keep going the next week too, but I just want to um, share with you that the gospel, I've already kind of tried to illustrate how it's pervasive from the beginning to the end of our Christian lives. But I also want to point out that it's a priority of our ministry or the way we're supposed to view our lives. It's, it's the number one, well, if somebody described you, would they use the gospel to describe you? Look at Paul. He says, so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, the good news about God, right? For I resolved 
to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. I would want to make a comment here. Not with religious rules and systems and four steps to do this and eight steps to do that, right? Wise and persuasive. But with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rust on human wisdom but on God's power. Paul, on purpose, wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus, crucified and risen, right? So that people would not depend on how smart Paul was, but on God's power. So, um, so again, the priority is, I wanted to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If somebody were going to say about your life, they heard you speak at, say you're a preacher, they heard me preach a thousand times, would they describe my preaching as all about Jesus and him crucified? Or would it be all this practical stuff about how to build up your 401k or how to you know, have a cute family or whatever else those things might be? Right? We get so missed. If you think about some of the famous preachers who have fallen and you go back and look at their ministry, I don't think you would describe their ministry as being characterized by the priority of Jesus and him crucified. And so it's a high priority. right? It's, it's, and that's an example from the preaching world. But what about from a parenting world? Would your kids say at your graveside, would they say, yep, my dad, he was always, he was always talking about the rules and how we needed to you know, step up and follow the system and be disciplined and strong and, and you know, go for the gold and be, you know, go, for, go big or go home, you know, pursue excellence, be a great, be a great leader. Is that, what, is that what my kids would know me for? Or would they know me as a man who said, man, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? I needed Jesus my whole life. And he's the one who makes a difference. Whether you're a baker, what's the little poem? Candlestick maker, butcher baker, whatever. And so there's so many things that we would want as parents to be characterized by the priority of the gospel. Right? Another passage in Colossians. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. See the gospel, right? You see how important it is? He's reconciled you through Christ's physical body through death, and so he now presents you and I holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Do you realize that? Right now, as you bow on your knees before God, even if you haven't confessed your sin yet from today, do you realize that right now, in God's sight, you are blemish-free? Not one mark on your paper? Not one? Not you're holy in his sight? And you're totally free from accusation? Not even your family could say, that rascal? Why? Why am I free from accusation? Because Jesus paid it all. He did that. I'm in him. 
And that makes all the difference. Okay? Any, any closing thoughts or questions before we wrap it up right here? I think this is a good place to stop. Well, I, I hope that it makes sense to you. I hope your heart is warmed. I don't know how it all plays out. I'm still learning too. I, I, I get confused. We're supposed to keep our children from being unruly. And so we're supposed to still have rules. But there's this grace all around it. And Paul even said that the law was his taskmaster to teach him about grace. And so um, I don't know how it all works. All I know is we got it all because Jesus paid it all. And I know for sure I lost it all. And so I'm so grateful. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that you did it all. Jesus, you paid it all for us and you love us. I know that you love me that much because you died for me and you rose from the dead and so now your life can be in my life. I, that's already true even though I don't behave or believe it. So help us all to believe and to put it into practice. Thank you so much that you're faithful and you're justified. You're not cheating. You're justified to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness only the enemy wants to accuse us, but you just promised that we're free from accusation. So help us believe from first to last. In Jesus' name, amen.